okay. can cut it from the last one okay. and use it. I'll do that. I can't uh, recreate perfection. But I mean, that's fair. <laughs> it was perfect. Hey, we got it in one last time, so why try it again? All right. Well, welcome back to the Sound of History podcast. Hopefully, oh, oh. people listen to the intro and came back for round two. Or they just started listening to this because people skip introductions all the time. That's fair. But I feel like our introduction is fun. Our introduction is very fun. If you didn't listen to it, then you can go back and listen to me failing to recognize a lot of music that I should know. Yeah, but I mean, you also knew some music that you should know. 50% solid fail. I've got a cat in my lap now. She wants to jump on the laptop and that's not going to work out. She's beautiful. She is. I wish you could all see her. Welcome to the Sound of History podcast. It's about music. My name is Nick. I'm Mika. (laughs) And in this, I attempt to teach music history to Mika, who is my wife. And I know very little. Is this is this mansplaining? Is that all this is? Is this just a podcast of me mansplaining (laughs) music history to you? If it is, then uh, that's okay. Yeah, I feel if, like... If I want to... No, because I don't yeah. know what it is already. It's just teaching you at yeah, that point, right? Yeah, it's just teaching. It's you who know more about something than I do. It's it's bad if you assume that you know more about music history than I do. That's but fair. I feel like we've known each other for long enough that you've seen yeah. that I know very, very little about many things. I sell myself really short on this. You do. I sound Which like is an idiot. not fair. Like, you know, you probably know more than, like, the average person. Not necessarily about history. Well, speaking of which, let's get right into the episode. We have a script this time. And the first line in the script is, so what do you know about the founding of America? Very little. (laughs) Fun fact, we're going to go see Hamilton tonight, and I could not tell you who Hamilton really was. (laughs) And it's going to be a real fun time with me trying to remember basic American history from, what, 10th grade when I go watch this musical. (laughs) Well, do you, like, you you know the basics. You know who we, what is it, revoluted? Who we uh, rebelled? Is that a word? <laughs> Probably not, but I was thinking American Revolution. What is I don't the, know. Yeah, we left the England. the revolution? Because, I mean, I Revolted. was told it was because we wanted to worship God, but, you know, yeah. I feel like there was probably, probably some other reasons, stuff yeah. going on. Yeah. But, yeah, that's about all I know. Yeah. People died on their way over here. Yeah. People died when they got here. We were British colonies for a while. Yeah. Right. So this is this is a music history podcast. So we're not going to talk a lot about like non music history. Thank God. (laughs) But I do believe that it's important to understand a little bit of the cultural surroundings of what's going on with music. Okay. Because I think music speaks into culture, but it also works the other way. Culture speaks mm-hmm. into music. Definitely. So both things influence each other, influence each other, and they change each other. So in order to properly understand music and what's happening around it, we have to understand what's going on around the music during the times we're talking about. I like that. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we won't get heavy into it. It's just kind of and a lot of it's going to be about race. Like that's influenced a lot of just American history in general, but especially American music history. Yikes. There's a lot of exploitation, and we're going to get right into that. In the very earliest days of America, back when we were still colonies of England, we didn't really have any sort of music that we could call our own. Like, we were we were essentially just British people living in America, so it makes sense that most of our music was just European music. Mm-hmm. Like, we hadn't 
we had other stuff to worry about. We didn't really worry about <laughs> creating music. Most of the music we had was religious. We had a lot of hymns and just singing the book of Psalms. And we also had the Puritans back then who, you know, because they're Puritans, didn't believe in having fun. <laughs> so they didn't believe in creating music <laughs> for fun. It was all just about how music could be used to worship God. So there was no fun music. That makes me so sad, that <laughs> sentence. Well, I mean, that's that's a drastic over-exaggeration of yeah. the Puritan point. But, I mean, that's, that's kind still of sad. Yeah, a characterization of it, but still. But around the 19th century, America began to develop its own musical identity. And the musical identity of America, much like the actual history of America, started pretty racist and has been an upward fight since. Yeah. Throughout this podcast, it might be hard to decide what to talk about first. Music, as I'm sure you know, there's constantly genres happening together at the same time. It's not like one genre happens and then it has a clean end and then another genre starts yeah. and so on and so forth. So it's kind of hard to know, like, we're talking about minstrelsy today. Spoiler alert, but I mean, it's in the title and we mentioned it last episode. Minstrelsy lasts until like 1915 1920 wow really in some sort of format it wasn't as popular but like at that point there was ragtime and jazz happening so it's like what gets talked about first when when do we stop and so on that's gonna get way harder when we get into like the 50s and 60s where there's like pop and rock and metal and country and everything happening all at once but i mean it's it's pretty straightforward at the beginning at least because any discussion of music history I've seen or been a part of, any of the classes I've taken, they've all started with minstrelsy, and it's pretty widely understood that minstrelsy was the start of American music. It was the first truly American musical form, which is really sad. Good job, guys. <laughs> yeah, and we'll, we'll understand more about how that's sad as we get into it. I'm excited to learn. Yeah, there are there are notable names within minstrelsy. They're kind of like some of the first musical famous people in America. Uh, Stephen Foster was one of them. Christy Minstrels is another one, and we're going to talk Wait, about her name them. is Minstrels. Well, it's Christy Minstrels. Edwin Christie oh. was the founder of it, so it's the Christie's Minstrels after Edwin Christie. Okay, yeah. I was really excited because I thought it was a woman named Christy Minstrel. <laughs> <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, oh yeah, Lord. but we're going to, we're going to talk about Stephen Foster and I think the Christy minstrels, they're going to be like, when we focus in on the story of individual artists next mm -hmm. episode, those are the two we're going to talk about because Stephen Foster is kind of like a really, really big name in American popular music history. All right. So we're going to talk about him a lot more in depth next week. Cool. So what do you know about minstrelsy or minstrel shows? I'm picturing a short man with a weird shaped guitar <laughs> and... I think he has a flower on top of his head <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's, uh, that's it. Yeah. So <laughs> no, it's <laughs> not really minstrelsy <laughs> at all. <laughs> Am I like kind of close? I think you're thinking of like European minstrels, like court jesters kind of, Am right? I, Is that I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, I think it came from a book. Uh, maybe I don't, I don't know, know. but I don't <laughs> think any of them wore flowers on their heads regularly. At maybe least. that's just my brain yeah, trying to probably. make it prettier. <laughs> I also don't think they use guitars all that much. Well, it's, was it wasn't like a guitar. It was it's like a like a, a, like a loop or whatever, like a lyre. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe the guitar that's like so. circular at the end. <laughs> okay. 
What about spherical. what about blackface? What do you know about blackface? Um, to me, I think of performing arts and blackface. I don't really like like when you had like performers who would try and portray like a black character. They would paint their face black instead of having a black person. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what it is. It's trying to act like a black character. It's bad. Yeah. I know that. Yeah, it is very bad. And we're going to learn about why that was bad. Great. Um, yeah, it's blackface was a staple in minstrelsy. Basically, minstrel shows were kind of built around blackface. Like, that's almost all it was. Uh, and yeah, it was horribly racist. So, minstrels, to make a long story short, were traveling musicians, dancers, and actors who would go town to town performing their minstrel shows. And minstrel shows, in their most basic form, were white actors mimicking and ridiculing African Americans and slaves. Dear God. Yeah. There's a little bit more nuance to it, especially as, like, the genre develops and changes, as it always does. But, like, if you boil it down, that was the essence of a minstrel show. They so would it's like comedy music at the yeah. expense of slaves. Yep. That's great. Exactly. Yeah, and they would the performers would paint their faces black and they would mimic African American songs and dances, making them seem silly, stupid, and crude. That makes me sad. Yeah, making it just kind of painting slaves and African Americans as like ignorant and uneducated and stupid, basically. And they were a mix of comedy skits, fun, I say in quotations, fun songs. And dances. Oh, my God. So, essentially, the first truly American form of music was making fun of black people and exploiting them. And that's just, that's just wonderful to think about. America. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Yeah. And minstrel shows reached the height of their popularity between, like, 1850 and 1870. But they existed long before that. And they would, like, unfortunately stick around quite a bit after that. The first important blackface entertainer was a guy named George Washington Dixon, who created a wildly successful character and song in New York called Coal Black Rose. Okay. Uh, he dressed as an overweight and overdressed black woman who was oh found no. unattractive and masculine. All sorts of messed up. Yeah. Uh, and the lyrics of Coal Black Rose tell the story of two African-American men fighting over that woman who was the overdressed one cold black rose was her name and it was about two african-american men fighting over her but the father of minstrelsy that was a very early example of like a minstrel performer or i guess a precursor to minstrelsy in some ways okay the father of minstrelsy was a guy named thomas dartmouth rice dartmouth dartmouth i can't i don't know dartmouth like dartmouth college yeah but I don't know if it's pronounced the same way. It's D A R T M O U T H. It's Dartmouth, but okay. pronounce it because we're the Dartmouth ones talking. <laughs> Dartmouth makes more sense because that's the one I know. He first performed in blackface and tattered clothes in a New York City theater in 1828. So that's real early, and that that was before minstrelsy like had a name. Uh, Rice's character was based on a folk trickster persona named Jim Crow that was a popular among black slaves. Like Jim Crow was a, he was someone of like, I guess, a folk hero among slave populations. So he just kind of stole that. Is that why we have Jim Crow laws? Yeah. It is? Well, we're going to talk about that in a second. Jim Crow, that character, would go on to be the most successful and well-known character in minstrelsy. 
his character, Rice's character, would set the the standard of what the genre was going to be and what it was. Mm. Uh, yeah, so have you heard about Jim Crow laws? Apparently you have. Do you I know have. like anything about them? I really should know so much more. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay if you know. They were basically very racist laws that after the Civil War, the southern states imposed to s- try and stop former slaves from voting oh no and they're named after the yeah the bad black car- oh yeah God. so they would be like literacy tests or because like slaves were mostly uneducated so they wouldn't be able to read so they would impose literacy tests before you could vote which would stop them from being able to vote obviously this makes this so much worse knowing that it's based in like ridicule like yeah. it's bad it's really really bad but then like yeah. even just the name is insulting and it makes me really sad yeah that sucks. Uh, yep, but because of Rice's Jim Crow character, that name kind of became a negative stereotype for African Americans because people would look at that character and say like that's what African Americans are like. So God. yeah, it was a very negative stereotype about it. In 1832, Rice claimed to have watched an African American man in Cincinnati doing a song and dance with a strange hop step in the middle of it. So Rice copied that performer and created a song called Jump Jim Crow. It was a song and dance. It's one of the earliest smash hits in American music. It was based on the song and dance of a disabled slave named Jim Crow or Jim Cruff. The sheet music, which was how music was published and purchased back then, before they were actually able to record it, was published in the early 1830s, but went on to pretty much launch the genre. So, yeah, just to kind of like point out something that's kind of important in the first few episodes Mm -hmm. there's not recorded music at this point so if you want to hear music the way you do that is by hearing it performed live whether that's in your own house or at like a concert venue so before you could like sell a cd or a cassette tape you would sell sheet music and that was how a song was published via sheet music so Mm -hmm. You would buy the song, and then you would take it home, and you would play it on the piano in your own house. So, like, when we talk about selling songs now, we're talking about selling sheet music at this point. In 1855, a writer said that the Jim Crow dance touched a chord in the American heart, which had never before vibrated, which basically meant that for the first time, white people got to get a look at black culture, even though it was a very parodied and not accurate version of it. No. And couldn't wait to try out this African-American dance for themselves. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, it, it was extremely parodied and extremely, like, not accurate. But he did pretty much steal it from an African-American performer. So, in some ways, it no. is sort of African-American culture. But he no. made it worse. He because perverted there it and are made it worse. No, because if you are the type of person that is buying sheet music and partaking in, like, this um, entertainment, you're the type of person that is around or has slaves and then there you go there is the culture right there you have these people like literally in your backyard not exactly we're gonna we're gonna learn it was very minstrelsy was a lot more popular not more but it was very popular up north where people and with people who had never met african-american people okay so like which honestly is way worse because their ideas of what African-American people were like came entirely from minstrelsy. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, because they had never actually met 
any African-American people, so they just based their thoughts on them on minstrelsy. So that's why this was very popular around the like abolitionist movement. When people were trying to get rid of slavery, they would be like, well, look at what they're like and point to minstrelsy, which is like, no, that's not what they're like. But no. Yeah. Really? Yep. Even like fighting for their freedom. That's oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I have a, s- a clip of someone performing the Jump Jim Crow song. No. You don't want to listen to it? Mm. <laughs> we don't have to. We can move on. No. It says it's, it says it's actually Thomas Dartmouth Rice performing it, but I don't believe that because I, I think he was dead way before you could record video with sound. Okay. I'm so nervous, everybody. I would just like to point out that we are both white, and I have been very vocal about how I don't know nearly as much as I should, and I'm trying to learn more things, but I just, I don't know, I feel like that's a little bit of background as to how I'm reacting to this, at least, is coming from a place of not really knowing a lot, and I don't know. I mean, I think it's definitely an appropriate reaction. Here is someone performing Jump Jim Crow. No, I'm so nervous. Oh, he's got a really big top hat. Oh, the black face. It's so bad. He's not even singing. Oh. Yep, that was Jim Crow. That's so stupid. That's not anything. But like... Half of it, he's not singing. His little dance is yeah, basic. Was, I mean, it's not good. <laughs> I don't none understand. Of it, was, <laughs> it was good. How is this like I one mean, of the main, like first big American gotta, hits? And it's like trash. I guess that actually is very forta- yeah. <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> I mean, what you got to remember what is coming out of, which was this culture of the only songs they had were religious songs and stuff. So like yeah. it doesn't have a whole lot of competition. It's pretty much this or listening to your great aunt play the piano in your parlor. Yeah. Which was called parlor songs. And we'll talk a little bit about them later. I have a feeling I'm going to like that a lot better. Probably. Jump Jim Crow was a smash hit. There were toys made of the character and oh. Rice toured everywhere doing the routine. Even toward England performing it. Guys, it's such a stupid routine. <laughs> yeah, you can. I'll put the clip, like the link to the YouTube video in the, the show Facebook. notes so people can see it. Yeah. yeah. Probably on, but yeah, on our like Podbean website or whatever. It's really crazy how people can make so much uh, notoriety mm-hmm. and so much money off of doing something insanely stupid and requiring yeah. no talent. That's there probably wasn't wow. a whole lot of money in it at this <laughs> point. But yeah, I get what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, this was in the 1830s before minstrel show was its own thing. So Rice typically performed as a small part of a variety show, and he even appeared in a few plays as his character. Rice died in 1860 after suffering suffering from a type of paralysis that limited his speech and movements. That's a blessing (laughs) to everyone. A little bit of karma there. Uh, It's now widely believed that his illness was due to alcoholism. It is said that despite his crazy popularity and success, he spent the latter part of his life in saloons drinking. Hmm. So maybe his conscience was getting to him a little bit, but I doubt it. The success of the Jump Jim Crow dance inspired other people to essentially head south and rip off African-American dances and songs. It's a guy named Billy Willock, who was a blackface performer who toured the south, and in 1830s 
said that he liked to, I'm just making it very clear, I'm quoting here, I'm quoting Billy Willock, <laughs> steal off to some Negro hut to hear the darkies sing and oh, see no. them dance, taking a jug of whiskey to make things merrier. Oh, no. Yeah. Ben Cotton, another performer, once said, I used to sit with them in front of their cabins and we would start the banjo twanging and their voices would ring out in the quiet night air in the weird melodies. So, yeah, they would essentially just go south and, like, sit with African-Americans and just kind of, like, take notes so they can write songs based on it. (laughs) In 1843, bookings as a single performer were hard to find. Everything was based on variety or group shows, so a guy named Daniel D. Emmett, along with Billy Willick, who's the delightful person we just heard quoted, uh, assembled a quartet that would perform a program of singing and dancing all in blackface with the accompaniment of bone castanets, fiddle, banjo, and tambourine. Those are the four primary instruments. What is a bone castanet? I looked this up, and I kind of forgot, but I think it's like, they're just a little, like, it's a percussion thing. Okay. Like, the white things that you, like, hit together. Oh. Yeah, like, you hold them in your fingers and, like, twist, and they, like, hit together kind of thing. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Like a little skeleton hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they called themselves the Virginia Minstrels. I don't know why, because I think they founded in New York, so I don't know why they were Virginia Minstrels, but whatever. And it was the first actual minstrel troupe, and they would largely dictate the style of the genre for years to come. It's a lot of pressure, boys. <laughs> Performing in blackface was already a thing, but the Virginia Minstrels were the first group that blacked up, quoting, the entire band and made it the focal point of their shows rather than, like, a small portion of a different show. So, you know... Already letting me down. Yeah. You know how, like, Thomas Dartmouth Rice would perform as, like, a small act in a variety show? Right. Instead, they just kind of turned that one performance into the whole show. Okay. Yeah. And then that was the birth of minstrelsy, the minstrel show, how they formed. Okay. All four were one day sitting in the North American Hotel in the Bowery when one of them proposed that with their instruments they should cross over to the Bowery Circus and give one of the proprietors, Uncle Nate Howes, a charavari. I don't know what that means. As he sat by the stove in the hall entrance, bringing forth his banjo for Whitlock to play on, Emmett took the violin, Pelham the tambourine, and Brower the bones. Without any rehearsal, with hardly the ghost of an idea as to what was to follow, they crossed the street and proceeded to browbeat Uncle Nate Howes into giving them an engagement. Calculation being that he would succumb in preference to standing the horrible noise. <laughs> they attempted no tune. Wow. They were making with their instruments. After standing it for a while, Uncle Nate said, Boys, you've got a good thing. Can't you sing us a song? Thereupon, Emmett, accompanying himself on his violin, began to sing Old Dan Tucker, the others joining in the chorus. The four minstrels were as much surprised at the result as was Uncle Nate. After singing some more songs for him they returned to the room which was quickly filled with spectators later on they rehearsed a few songs in Emmett's room so yeah so they just kind of formed accidentally it sounds like they straight up just were like we're going to go make a racket and bother (laughs) this person by the way I looked up Cherivery and it is a noisy mock serenade oh yeah that sounds exactly what they did to mock an unpopular person oh so they were they didn't like Uncle Nate, apparently. Can we cuss in these? <laughs> so Emmett claimed to have written the song Dixie while he was a member of the Bryant's minstrel group, which is a different group. But every time he told the story of how he wrote it, the story would change, and several other people also claimed to have written it. Emmett is normally given the credit, though. 
Dixie was pers- was first performed by Emmett and the Bryant's Minstrels in 1859 and would be a huge success, especially in the South. The Confederates used it as their rallying cry during the Civil War, God. which actually made Emmett, who was born in Ohio, not happy at all because he was Union. <laughs> <laughs> this is all sorts of messed up. It was also, ironically, President Lincoln's favorite song. No. Yep. He no. said after the war ended, I have always thought that Dixie was one of the best tunes I ever heard and said that oh, because of the war, they had recaptured it. Do you do you think you know what Dixie is? Do you know that song? Uh, no. Well, we're about I'm thinking of Dixie Chicks, and I it. feel like that is not what's happening. No, I don't think it's Dixie Chicks. President Lincoln really let us down. He's supposed to be such a stand-up guy. Come on. <sighs> and this is Dixie. It's just a picture of all of well, soldiers. This isn't important. It's the song. That's <laughs> yeah, I know, but I'm just shivering. Yeah. That's fair. Wait, that's it? There's no words? It's just no, that? There's no, I don't think there's words. People might have added words, but the ones I found weren't words. It was just that song because it was just like it was what the Confederates would play as they walked, kind oh. of. But they would also perform it. You know what? I take it back, Lincoln. I guess that was. Yeah, kind of I mean, it w- the pleasant. song in itself probably wasn't really racist. Just everything around it, it came back. From was it. yeah. Okay. The Virginia minstrels were so popular that they even performed in front of President John Tyler at the White House in 1844. They inspired copycats that were also popular, and that was the birth the birth of the genre, the first genre of truly American popular music. Go America! <laughs> Eventually, the minstrel show format was standardized into a show consisting of three parts. Edwin Christie, who is the founder of the best-known minstrel group, the Christie's Minstrels, is considered the founder of this particular format. So he's the one who kind of like first put the official format together and everyone else just followed along. The first part was called a walk-around, which was the minstrel company coming on stage, singing and dancing. It's basically an introduction. A staple of the walk-around was called the cakewalk. White audiences adored the cakewalk. It was their favorite part. But they didn't realize that the cakewalk originated with African slaves mimicking the walk of their rich owners to make fun of it. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my favorite parts of this whole episode. The irony. Like the, the slaves were making fun of their white owners and then white people came down to steal from the slaves and oh, they stole wow. that. <laughs> white people loved it. Idiots. It's just great. Um, the troupe was then seated in a semicircle with one member on each end playing the tambourine or the bones. The Inmen were named Brother Tambo and Brother Bones, which is not creative in the slightest, but, you know, whatever. And they engaged in an exchange of jokes between the group's songs and dances. It was customary for Brother Tambo to be slim and Brother Bones to be fat. A character called Mr. Interlocutor, which is also not creative, but a weird word, so we'll give it to him sat in the middle of the group, acting as the master of ceremonies, as the interlocutor, who was always dignified, like wearing a suit and stuff, took his place in the middle of the semicircle. He uttered the time-honored phrase, gentlemen, be seated, we will commence with the overture. They make it sound so fancy. I think that's kind of the point. God. Another staple of the first part of the show was a usually mellow, morose ballad. One fan wrote in 1879, these mournful ditties form the staple of the first part. But there's occasionally a rattling comic song by Brother Bones. I want to know that that quote, he spelled it B-R-U-D-D-E-R. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> he dances to the tune. He throws open the lapel of his coat. And in a final spasm of delight, he stands spasm upon... Spasm of delight? In a final spasm... Just wait. It gets worse. In a final spasm of delight, he stands upon his head on the chair seat. And for a thrilling, 
an evanescent instant, he extends his nether extremities in the air. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds not clean. This was the entertainment of the day. (laughs) Nether extremities. (laughs) Hey, get your nether extremities off the table. (laughs) Oh, it's a thrilling and evanescent instant. And the second part of the minstrel show was basically a variety section, so it could be kind of anything. It included singers, dancers, comedians, pretty much whatever they thought would be popular. It was like a little mini variety show. But was everyone in blackface? I don't know. I don't think so. I think blackface was like mostly people were, especially like comedians and stuff, if they were doing a character. But like they, I think they might occasionally have like acrobats who wouldn't be. Uh, Part three. Ended the show with a one-act play that often looked reminiscently back on the, finger quotes, easy life on the plantation. Which, of course, if you know anything about a slave's life, was not easy at all. Goodness. I just want to point out that the Christie minstrels were the most important minstrel group of the time. And I know we just talked about them because they, like, standardized the format. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Foster wrote for them. Their influence on the genre can't be overstated. Like, they were huge. But I'm going to save them for next episode. So we'll look more in depth into them and their history and their founding next episode yeah minstrel shows would always be a way to caricature african americans and paint them in a bad light whites would use these depictions when fighting against the abolition of slavery they would point to these depictions and claim that the african americans needed the intervention of slavery to civilize them and keep them in check Mm. (laughs) yeah it's rough After emancipation, minstrel shows remained very popular. Whites continued to wear blackface, and their portrayals of the slaves would define the meaning of blackness for many Americans who, by choice or geography, had little contact with African Americans. A lot of white people would grow up thinking that African Americans were uncivilized or stupid because of how they were portrayed in these shows, even though they had never actually met anyone who wasn't white. Prejudices are learned. Yeah, and in this case taught by very stereotypical portrayals of people. They also portrayed slavery as fun, carefree time for African Americans. Do you know the book Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a very popular anti-slavery novel, but the minstrel shows would sort of make fun of it and turn it on its head. Here are the lyrics to one of the songs they wrote. Oh, white folks will have you to know, dis am not the version of Mrs. Stowe. Would her the darks am all unlucky, but we am the boys from old Kentucky. Then hand the banjo down to play. We'll make it ring both night and day. And we care not what the white folks say. They can't get us to run away. So, not great. Just, like, a large part of it was just trying to make people who had never been to a plantation, knew nothing about slavery, think it was okay and it was fun. And that African Americans enjoyed it. Which is obviously completely not true, but it was... Making the media into propaganda. Yeah, yeah basically, which, you know, we know nothing <laughs> about. <laughs> so That's weird that that happened. Yeah. Minstrel troops of black performers started popping up after the Civil War, which definitely didn't help the image that the minstrel show created. William Henry Lane, known to audiences as Master Juba, oh, no. was one of the first African Americans to perform for white audiences in blackface, and the only one of the time period to tour with a white minstrel group. He started performing and gained popularity in the 1840s. Lane was a great dancer and would often battle the white dancers, beating them every time. Wait, so this is a black man who's joining into this? Yes. Okay. Yeah, but I, I, I just think it's really funny that they were having dance battles back then. <laughs> so I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> and I read that and I was like, 
they're doing dance battles like what is happening in this dance uh he became a sensation in england for his dancing style in like 1848 era the Americans were far less kind to him, and he eventually faded from the limelight, dying in around 1852 or 1853. We don't really know why, but it's probably because of malnutrition and overwork. Oh, goodness. Uh, Master Juba is created with inventing tap dancing oh. and was highly influential in the development of jazz and step dancing. So Good yeah, for him. The kind of dancing he was doing was basically tap dancing, and he kind of invented it. That's awesome. Yeah. By 1860, black performers were a staple of minstrel shows and most likely added to the stereotyping of black people. At the time, performing in a minstrel show was the only way for really talented African-American musicians and performers to actually earn a living and support themselves. So it's not like they really had any choice. Like, sure, they were joining in on this, which was essentially built around making fun of them, but they didn't have a choice. Like, if you wanted to make money, you kind of had to do it. It was the popular music form, and they were musicians and entertainers, so, like, they didn't have a choice. They did what they had to do. Sucks that this is what they had to do, but, you know, I feel like we can, like, look back and blame them. Like, why are you joining in on this? Why are you making it okay? But, like, if you put yourself in their shoes, they really didn't have, like, they were shoehorned into it. And I guess they also, like, from this helped direct the next yeah. wave of music. Yeah. So I wonder if, I wonder what it was like, like, touring with these racist white men and how those interactions went if they're collaborating on something i'm willing to bet not great yeah because they didn't a lot of these people weren't actually writing the songs they were just performing them people like stephen foster who we'll talk about next week okay. wrote the songs but they like stephen foster stephen foster wasn't actually a minstrel performer he never performed he just wrote songs that the minstrels he does would sound like a boring person actually <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's interesting just doesn't sound like he could be a performer. Stephen yeah. Foster. <laughs> from 1850 racist. From 1850 to 1870, minstrelsy was in its heyday, which coincidentally corresponded to the growth of the abolitionist movement. After 1870, the popularity of the shows declined rapidly. It's hard to paint an encompassing picture of minstrelsy in this period because minstrel groups were everywhere and they were made of African-American and white performers. They all looked different, and they, but they all borrowed the same format that were set up by the Christie Minstrels. So they were like, it's kind of weird because it's mostly just a variety show, so e any show on any given night could look different. So it's kind of hard to like paint what was actually going on. A lot of musical genres slowly fizzle out, but minstrelsy dropped fast. It went from almost the only popular form of music to pretty non-existent in about 20 years. By 1919, there were only three minstrel troops that remained in America. The minstrel show acts continue to be depicted in TV and movies well into the 1950s. Wow. Yeah, it's just great to hear. The decline in minstrel show's popularity after the Civil War was partly due to the explosion of other styles of performance, like variety shows, musical comedies, and most notably, vaudeville, which is what we're going to talk about after I Stephen actually Foster. don't know what that is at vaudeville? all. Yeah, it's, I mean, we'll, we'll get there. Episode three, I guess, okay. is vaudeville. Uh, yeah, so vaudeville shows promoted by legendary performers and managers like P.T. Barnum. Oh, he, he, I do know that. He wasn't vaudeville. He was like circus or variety show or something. I don't think anyone would call him vaudeville, but like along the same veins, kind of. Okay, well, I'm back to not knowing anything about vaudeville. <laughs> <laughs> At the end, minstrel troops tried to copy Barnum's marketing and performing style because he was insanely successful. 
The troops grew larger, and as many as 19 performers were on stage at a time, and the acts grew more elaborate and flashy. Sometimes acrobats and circus performers would appear in the shows. These changes meant that the smaller troops were weeded out, like the ones who couldn't afford to do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They just slowly phased out. In the 1870s, a lot of the troops began focusing on more refined music. They would add authentic African slave spirituals, I mean, stolen from the traveling black groups, into their acts. But at least they were authentic, not parodied. A group known as the Harverley's Mastodons even stopped performing in blackface. They instead performed in extravagant clothes. Okay. Yeah, which is better. I think we can all agree. I'd well, rather someone, yeah, someone, I would rather them be performing like fancy dresses than blackface. What it still is now. <laughs> <laughs> the shows drifted further and further away from their roots, which, you know, isn't a bad thing ethically, but it is a bad thing for the genre because it like stopped being what it was. After the more elaborate shows started dying out or adapting into vaudeville, minstrel shows were mainly performed by small groups in the rural South and West. White actors moved into vaudeville, so the African-American minstrels were the last ones left carrying the torch, for the most part. Okay. It really is a shame that minstrelsy is considered the start of American popular music, which I think we've hit on a lot in this episode. Some songs that were written for minstrel shows are kind of still popular today. Not, like, popular. Like, people aren't going to listen to them on Spotify, but people, like, you play it and you'll be like, oh, yeah. Like what? Like the Dixie song? Sort of, yeah. People would know Dixie. We're going to... Stephen Foster wrote a few that I think you might know that we'll talk about next week. Or not. Week after next. Whenever. Whenever episode two goes up. Minstrel C was responsible for horribly negative stereotypes of African Americans that are still present today. Not... I mean, like, no one's going to watch a minstrel show today, but, like, those stereotypes that Minstrel C kind of helped build are still prevalent in some circles today. Frederick Douglass, who is the great abolitionist, he probably summed up blackface and minstrelsy the best when he called it the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion <laughs> denied to them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens. Burn! <laughs> like, that's just like, yep. <laughs> Once oh, you learn wow. about minstrelsy and you read that quote, you're like, yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, nail on the head. Yep. Minstrelsy also set the stage for a recurring theme in American popular music, unfortunately. African Americans have pretty much driven popular music throughout the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. As we move through it, we'll see how they influence jazz, blues, rock, country, and pretty much everything else. African Americans have often been exploited to give America the music we love. And that, unfortunately, is going to be a recurrent theme probably through these episodes. Hmm. And that all started here with minstrel shows. All Uh, right. I do want to... We'll, we'll, we'll take a step back, take a step back from minstrelsy, and we'll take a little time to talk about another form of music that was popular during this time period, but wasn't, like, distinctly American, okay. like minstrelsy was. Uh, it was considered the more highbrow form of entertainment. It was like going to see a ballet, and minstrelsy is like going to a theater to see the new Fast and Furious movie. Like, <laughs> the rich people did this, and then the poor people, or, like, middle class, lower okay. class, did minstrelsy. Uh, they're called parlor songs. And it was the most popular songs among the upper class in the 19th century. It was circulated via sheet music, and they mirrored classical music in piano and vocals, but were limited in skill level because, you know, because you have to yeah, perform your you own. You have to play. It. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone is a con- like whatever classically trained pianist. That's hilarious. Uh, people who wanted to hear, yeah, I kind of already said this, but people who wanted to hear music in this area, they had to make it themselves because there wasn't like mm-hmm. recorded music, wasn't really radio. So after dinner, families would gather in the parlor where they would sing and play songs. Songs were normally sentimental stories set to pretty easy accompaniment. 
because it wasn't authentically American and honestly it was pretty boring, I don't want to talk a lot about parlor songs. They are what they are, and they played a role in American music history, but not nearly as much as minstrelsy, which is unfortunate. I think it'd be kind of fun. Like, all right, everyone ate. Now let's all yeah sing a song together. Can you imagine doing that with your family? I would hate it. None of my family is musical. We would be horrible. You guys, Nick has two brothers. I can only like, I can only imagine all of your discomfort. Oh yeah, if you be had so to bad. do this as children. Be so bad. <laughs> One time, I tried to get my family to come watch me perform magic tricks, and that was a disaster. I can't even <laughs> imagine like a daily singing time. I would enjoy it. You would hate yeah, it. Yeah, you would enjoy it. I would hate it for sure. <laughs> well, yeah. So that was minstrelsy. Next episode, we'll look. We'll take a deeper look at particularly Stephen Foster because okay. he's more important and a little bit more fun to talk about because he's not. I mean. He's still racist, but he's not as racist, so it's helpful. That's really not a big win for him. No, but like I don't think it's we'll, we'll talk about it. difficult to be not as <laughs> racist. Like oh gosh. Well, t- I mean, we'll talk about it more in depth. But like he was, he had a pretty close friend throughout his whole life that they were like grew up friends who was a pretty major key figure in the abolitionist movement. So like he was well connected with people who wanted to get rid of slavery and who okay. were very like pro civil rights. So he, yeah, we'll talk about it more and talk about how he was like actually not that bad of a guy next week. Okay. And then we'll also talk about the Chrissy Mentrals a little bit who are, as we talked about the biggest and most well-known minstrel group. All right. Yeah. So that was minstrel C. This has been fun and depressing. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's pretty much. America, fun and depressing. Yep, American <laughs> history in particular. All right. All right, well. Well, eventually, hopefully, it won't be as depressing. No, it won't. Well, vaudeville wasn't as racist. I mean, everything's racist Like how we're just saying, always. it's not well, that bad. It's, we've already talked about minstrelsy, so this isn't as bad as that. See, it's only a little bit horrible. I say that because, like, <laughs> I want to say it's not racist, but just knowing the time the background and yeah knowing like what was going on culturally right then the people doing it were definitely racist still probably yeah like i can't say that universally but they were probably still racist so it's hard for me to say it wasn't racist but like it wasn't stereotyping african-americans okay. for financial gain so it's a oh little bit better. man it's a little bit better to talk about at least all right well that was fun thank you for <laughs> learning me a thing all right. Well, thank you guys for listening. If you managed to make it through all of the racism of this episode, not by us, but by people long dead. Yeah, and I guess that's an important thing. to say. <laughs> and We hope you will join us next time when we talk about when things Stephen are Foster. slightly less yes. racist. <laughs> and I just kind of giving us some like some leniency. I don't think we're going to be able to upload these every week. So I'm thinking like every other week, maybe just because I know it might be kind of hard to get us together, like record and then edit and research. It's taken us a few months to uh, sit down to do this at all. So maybe in the next six months, we'll have another podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Now we'll do we'll do better. I'm thinking two weeks every other week. Two weeks. We're going to commit. Is that biweekly? What is biweekly? Is biweekly twice a week or is it every other week? Doesn't that mean this? Oh, no, it does not mean the yeah, same thing. Yeah, because bi-weekly, two-weekly, so to me that means twice a week, but I it could it also mean two other. weeks. So, all right, well, whatever. Every other week is what I'm aiming for with this. <laughs> so we will see you guys then.